Welcome to Movement Conversations, a podcast brought to you by New Generations North America, where we spend time with disciple-making movement catalysts focusing on the core DNA of gospel movement. I'm Roy Moran, your host and the North American Regional Director at New Generations. If you're not familiar with New Generations, we work with God to establish disciple-making movements among the unreached. And we define a movement as a hundred new churches that have arisen out of four generations of disciple-making activity. As of March 2020, we're tracking 128 disciple-making movements among 655 people groups. We're currently engaged in 55 countries and 77 urban centers and affinity groups. It's our hope to share the wisdom that God has granted us in all this movement activity, as well as bring some of our friends to the table and talk about movement DNA. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Later, we'll share with you how you can take advantage of the training and coaching networks New Generations is developing in North America. But for now, uh, let's get to our guests for today. Well, I'd like to welcome my guest today um, to the New Generations podcast, uh, Justin Long. Justin and I have a a, a long history, uh, both with the organization and beyond. I'm on the board there and have enjoyed my tenure and getting ready to finish my sixth year as a board member at Beyond. And Justin, you um, uh, have, have come to be the keeper of the numbers of, uh, of this whole movement thing that we're both involved in. And I've always appreciated our interaction and the meticulousness which you uh, go about your uh, your task. So uh, thanks for being here and being a part of this today. Thank you. It's uh, going to be a great time. So give us a little bit of history on Justin Long. I mean, uh, where where you been and what you done? <laughs> oh, well. The legal, uh, part, the legal part, not the other. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's see. Uh, in, a, in a small hospital, no, I won't go that far back. Um, I started, you know, my, my first job ever out of high school was running a, a bread route where you deliver bread and Intamin's cakes to grocery stores. And I rapidly discovered I did not like early morning deliveries of bread and cakes. And so uh, my second job was working for a political campaign as a typist. I'm a very fast typist. Uh, and this was way back in the day. And I rapidly discovered I, I didn't like working for uh, politics either. Um, and shortly after that, I took on a a part-time job with a a mission agency and uh, that became a full-time job. And because I have an IT background and a a natural bent towards spreadsheets, one of the early things I did with that agency was to create, one of my first jobs in politics was to create databases and, and donor databases. So one of the things I did with this mission agency was help them with their donor databases. But then I quickly started creating databases of uh, who was working where. This was a, a, an agency that was an association of mission agencies, and they would get these requests in, like, I want to go work in India. Who should I apply to? And so rather than try to go to the filing cabinets and pull out papers, I thought it'd be great to have a database of that. So that's what I did. I built a database. Lo and behold, that wasn't something that a lot of people did back then uh, to have this database. It, it came to find out it was what we call work among. Uh, so I had created this thing that, that a lot of people were, were interested in. So after that, I, I migrated to a big project called the World Christian Encyclopedia because I liked databases and I had this kind of research bent. So I worked with them for many years, documenting, help, helping the process of documenting the world's peoples and languages and countries and all these different things. Um, and that's, that's basically how I got started in missions research. Uh, and since then, I've worked with a variety of agencies in a variety of different places. I came to Beyond about uh, it's nearly 10 years ago now uh, and have become uh, the, the global researcher for Beyond. And I still work with Operation World. I still work with the World Christian Encyclopedia. I helped them with the third edition that just came out. Uh, still work with Joshua Project. I'm, things i'm that's just who i am and what i do awesome 
<clears throat> so you like uh, you like looking at spreadsheets and staring at numbers. Has COVID uh, been good for you to sort of <laughs> kept you inside and <laughs> and allowed to look at things on screens? Um, in some ways, COVID has been very good for me because I am a bit of an introvert and I I don't mind uh, this. On the other hand, COVID has generated uh, lots of data in downloadable forms that I can download and toy with and play with and generate all sorts of apocalyptic scenarios and get very depressed at times over them. And so in other ways, it's not been very good for me at all. I have to emerge and go out and work in the backyard in my daughter's garden or something like that and realize the world's not going to end. <clears throat> well, give us, a, give us an idea, Justin, how we got started in measuring uh, movements. Uh, where, where did this whole uh, concept come from? And uh, what, were, what were the early beginnings? Well, um, I, I, I don't want to claim too much credit, uh, but I, I would say it, the idea of, of actually measuring movements like we measure them now probably actually originated with me, quite frankly. Um, I'm used to big databases of denominations and people groups and all these kinds of things. I, I'm used to building those. And um, yeah, about five years or so ago, uh, I was uh, in a network in relationship with a lot of people who are interested in, in movements and we're talking about movements and I was looking for something that would move the needle, as it were, and, and movements, uh, everything I'd heard about these things, they were getting ahead of population growth and they were, uh, they were around a lot. So I just started um, keeping my ears open and collecting stories. That's basically what I was doing. Well, pretty soon, uh, a, a, a team of story collectors gelled. Uh, once uh, a friend of mine, my, my boss, Stan Parks, I, I don't remember the exact sequence of how this happened, but I think he knew I was collecting data and he was collecting stories. And then we had another friend who's a very good story collector and, and compiler and editor and putting things together. So we formed this core team. And we uh, basically just uh, put together a, a folder at the time it was hosted on Dropbox and we just started collecting case studies. And then we built a template for the case studies and then we started pursuing the case studies and then I started sitting down with people and doing interviews to fill out the template because they were too busy to fill out the template. And pretty soon we had this little collection of, of case studies going and I couldn't keep track of them all in the folder. So instead I built a spreadsheet that was basically an index of the case studies. And that, that was the first generation of, of this database. Well, pretty soon I started adding things to that index uh, movements that I needed to get case studies for that I didn't already have case studies. And then it started kind of blossoming out after that. And pretty soon that index became the database of movements that we, that we presently have um, that are on file. So that's uh, roughly how it got started right around the time, a couple of years ago, we had uh, some big meetings that generated the 2414 network. And right about that time, uh, several people collected big data sets, by big, I mean, you know, somewhere between 15 movements and maybe a few hundred. Mm -hmm. um, and they gave those to me in, in, uh, in preparation for the, for the meetings. And when I came to the meetings, I was able to uh, reveal global statistics for the movements on the basis of those, of those databases that uh, frankly shocked a lot of people. And it was largely because, I mean, this isn't anything that, that, I mean, I didn't start all these movements. I just documented them. And <clears throat> quite frankly, in a lot of places, uh, a lot of people, you know, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. There was a lot of people who didn't have the whole story. But once we put the whole story together, it was much bigger than any single individual knew. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was, we, we've been keeping track of it ever since. Yeah. So give us uh, uh, some of the mile markers, like when you first began, early years, you know, that kind of stuff. How, how has it progressed in terms of the collection of the numbers? Um, yeah, I'd have to go back and really think. But, but when we were first starting to collect stories of movements, we knew of maybe... 
50 to 100 mm-hmm. individual movements at that point. By the time we got to the London meeting, I, I, think, I think the number was around 500 movements that we knew of at that point. That It was vastly bigger by several orders of magnitude than, 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 what, we, uh, than what we knew of up to that point. I'd have to go back to the original PowerPoints to refresh my memory. And now, uh, at this point, a couple of years later, uh, we've documented well over 1,000 a thousand movements worldwide in uh, most of the Joshua Project clusters, uh, most of the uh, big major language streams, uh, every UN region. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's far and away larger than than most people have have realized. And a lot of what we've documented uh, at this point is not. Some of it's new in the past couple of years, but a good amount of it is things that some of it stretches back for 20 years some of it stretches back for five years or so uh it's just a matter of you know finding people who are doing something that nobody else knows about so we we probably ought to just stop and define movement here as we're talking about it we we kind of maybe together share common definition but people listening may not know so tell us what's your definition of movement so a movement is generally defined as a rapidly multiplying body of believers, uh, typically organized in what we would term generations, and usually a movement has at least four generations or consistently reaches. Uh, basically, it has four generations and is consistently adding another generation uh, every 18 months to two years, something in that time frame, maybe faster. Um, a lot of movements will say they don't count it as a movement until it hits a threshold of a thousand believers. Not every, not every uh, group does, but usually if you have four generations of house churches. So what I mean by a generation is um, let's say you coach me and maybe a couple other people. So I'm your generation one, I'm generation two. Now I, and each of the other two people, also coach a couple of other people who are starting we're, we're church planters so i started church planted out of mine i coach two or three other people and these other two guys they coach two or three other people and then that generation in turn also coaches maybe some people coach like 5 10 15 people some people coach one or two something like that it's very uneven so if by this definition um, the image in your brain is say you know amway or something like that you would not be far off it is it is that multiplying kind of effect so it has to be generational it has to be rapidly growing and in most instances um if you are not at a thousand believers with four generations you are probably so close as the next generation is surely going to put you over that level some places the churches are smaller due to security requirements and so four generations is a little bit smaller in numbers some places there there aren't those security requirements and so you're definitely over a thousand by the time you get to four generations so that is essentially a movement now many of the movements that we've documented are well beyond four generations they are some of them could be eight ten fifteen generations in, in a stream um, so they, they can be quite large uh, because they just flow out over these natural social um, re- relational networks. So uh, give us, go back to the, the number over a thousand. Um, mm-hmm. how, how many churches, how many, you know, believers, uh, that kind of stuff are we talking about in terms of uh, movements? The overall number? Mm-hmm. Uh, right now we've documented well over, uh, over a thousand. Um, the last published number that I had was, I think, a thousand fifty-six. Uh, we've got a, I've got a new data set that's getting ready to come out that will be substantially larger than that, even. But I'm still finalizing the numbers. Um, well over eleven, twelve hundred uh, movement streams, and in total, somewhere around seventy-five million believers, and something like four point five million individual churches house groups mm-hmm. and so when you're talking generations you're not talking about believers but you're talking about generations of churches or or house churches or however you want to you know, micro churches however you want to categorize it 
the, the replication is in churches, not in believers. Is that, is that the case? Well, the, the typical way to talk about it is to say that um, uh, disciples make disciples, mm-hmm. churches make churches, and leaders make leaders. You should see multiplication of all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, as disciples make disciples, those disciples obviously will gather into churches. Mm-hmm. Now, typically in these movements, a lot of the a lot of the home groups and the churches themselves, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. So you will find churches that intentionally uh, train and encourage and and promote the the, the idea that their members also plant. Uh, new groups. So in that sense, churches can multiply into other churches. And most movements for, for this to happen, um, a movement, especially once it, gets to, once it gets to three or four generations, a movement has to become basically a leadership factory. Um, you know, you, you can't, a lot of times in the West, uh, the model of church is in fact, I wrote about this just the other day. It's it's much more similar to a a, um, a McDonald's franchise, right? You have a, a you have a business. It's at a location. It has activities. Uh, the business is run. The church is run by a pastor. The business is run by a manager, um, and it serves the community, and it has a lot of people in that in that entity, and. If you become a frontline cook in a McDonald's or something, right? It's like a leadership internship thing, and you can rise up through the ranks until they send you out to start another franchise. And that's that really is the model. You know, you think about it in the West, the basic model that we have for church is you become you you go to seminary, you come to a church, you're the you're at least this is the model I'm familiar with. You become the youth pastor and then you become the family pastor and then they send you off to take on a small church and then you migrate from that small church to a bigger church and there's a defined path that we all understand. For a movement, you're really talking about people who lead small groups and then in the course of leading the small groups, they build these discipling relationships with other disciples and so they become leadership leaders of leaders uh, and if they are successful in that leadership effort, and if they're successful in passing on what they know, then soon they become leaders of leaders of leaders. So for a movement to succeed, they have to have this leadership development for what are basically, um, and I use this, I try to use this in the best sense of the term, amateur or lay leaders. They're not professional leaders in the sense that they're, they're paid or they, whatever. But they are, you know, people who, fishermen who were taught to fish for men and for women. And that, that is something that the bigger the movement gets, the more it has to focus on developing these leaders who can, who can impart into other people. It's not about running buildings and budgets. It's about imparting into other people what they, what they have been given, they pass on. Yeah. And that, that creates the exponentiality of the whole thing then, is it? You know, there's everyone's multiplying rather than just a select few of trained people are attempting to multiply. Yeah, that's cool. So um, let me get a, a term you mentioned here uh, and explain it to us. You mentioned uh, 2414. Tell us what that is. 2414 is a network of agencies and uh, churches and foundations and individuals. It's a, it's a loose decentralized network of people who want to see uh, whose goal is to see a DMM team, a disciple-making movement team, uh, in place amongst every people in place by 2025. That is the goal of 2414. Recognizing that, okay, A, recognizing that that is an immensely uh, aggressive goal, uh, and B, recognizing that just because we have a team in place does not mean that a church has been planted and also does not mean that we have uh, finished the task or we've reached closure or anything like that. It's, it's basically getting the teams in place for the race to be run amongst that people group, not that the race is finished in any sense of the, of the word. So it's a, it's a very audacious goal. Um, and quite frankly, when back in London and Dubai in the, in the, in the meetings um, that we had, when we said, um, 
actually you might need to excise the name of those places. Uh, when back in the, uh, at the beginning of the, of the 2414 meetings that we had, uh, when, they, when they announced this goal, I thought, this is really biting off more than we can chew. And several people looked at me and said, your data shows we are really, really close to that line anyway. Um, if not now, when? And I thought, well, okay, uh, we can. You're, you're, you're right. The data does does show that we're we're further along than. I mean, we're in we're in every UN region. We're in most of the uh, very small percent Christian countries. We're in the majority of the affinity blocks and clusters of the Josh the, the Joshua Project. Uh, basically, we have huge you know, spread over the people groups. So it's, it's not like it's in just one place. Yeah. A few doublings and a significant thing could happen. Yeah. So you might mention uh, why that is so attainable. I mean, in the sense that movements, starting movements, where, where most movements come out of, you know, they come out of movements. And so if we're every place, you know, like you say, doubling pretty quickly. Could, uh, right be a big footprint well you know it's it's a it's a terrible example it's, it's an awful example uh and yet i can't resist pointing to it because it's such a clear example right now i mean we have this major pandemic and we've seen how this thing can spread all around the world it's horrible it's tragic i want this is a movement i want to i want to see stopped right we need a vaccine to stop it but it, it does show the power of exponential growth and the ability to spread. Yeah. And with movements, uh, it, with these believers spread in movements in all of these different places and amongst all of these different language groups. And not only that, these are believers who have, uh, they, were, they were spiritually born inside a movement. That was, that was how they came to faith. Uh, they have been discipled and mentored inside a movement. And so from the very beginning, they've learned um, how to share their faith with others, how to make disciples of others. And in many instances, because of what they have been saved out of, they are excited to do that as well. Far more excited than you're going to see of the typical Western uh, uh, Christian who was born into a Christian family and, and barely knows how to share. You know, has to be really coached to share his faith. So with all of these groups all over the place and, and these contagious uh, believers, I use that in the best sense of the term, these ones who are eager to share their faith all over the place, um, doublings are not that difficult. So the typical thing that we see is that a movement grows very rapidly in its early stages, slows down as it gets bigger, and tends to reach its uh, local maximum somewhere around 100,000. Now, there are a lot of movements that are far bigger than 100,000. But in reality, when you look at them, often they are made up of individual streams and smaller components of those streams that are around 100,000 to a few million in size. So most movements reach uh, the, the local maximum of about 100,000, and then they reach the same barriers that cross-cultural missionaries reach. They, they reach a barrier of uh, like a political boundary or uh, a provincial boundary or a transport boundary or a linguistic boundary or a cultural boundary, all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so they, like us, in order to surmount that boundary, they have to basically send out cross-cultural workers. They have to send a worker from here over there to start all over again. That is a huge barrier for a movement, but they have this going for them. Typically, they are near culture, cross-culture, whereas we are far culture, cross-culture. It's a lot easier for you know somebody in, in India, say, to go to, I don't know, um, Bangladesh or Pakistan or something like that, right? Not saying it's, it's easy, but it is easier mm -hmm. than for us to send an American or a Brit or German or an Australian or something like that there. Yeah. Um, so with all of these movements very, very close to unreached, unengaged, you know, untouched groups, um, a, 
a they can double up to their local maximum and then they they learn to send out workers to those near culture places and they can get to a lot of places a lot quicker than we can by sending um, far culture workers now I am not saying by saying that let me give the caveat that I, I'm not saying that the answer is always local workers because it's it's not and I, I'm not a person who believes that you know the West should just send money and you know, the, the African Asia should send all the workers to all the dangerous places because I, I firmly believe there's a lot of problems in that approach. Um, I believe that it's going to take all of us and, and it's just a fact of life that the people who are closest to the unreached, if they have the training and the motivation and the desire and the ability, the people who are closest to the unreached will always be more effective than those who are further from furthest from the unreached, generally speaking. We'll get back to our guests in just a minute, but I wanted to share with you how you can access some of the New Generations resources. If you go to newgenerations.org, you can keep up with New Generations and its global efforts around the world by jumping on the mailing list, getting regular updates about what God is doing. We house resources for disciple-making movements at disciplemakingmovements.com. And we keep our North American friends together at newgenerations.us and newgenerations.ca. Don't rewind to get all that. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. Or you can take a look at newgenerations.us, look for the podcast, and all that information will be there. So help me with some credibility here. Um, uh, the numbers, you're, you know, thousand plus movements, you alluded to the fact that you're going to, you know, announce that there's, you know, 1200 plus movements and probably go up another, you know, 10 million people and, you know, so many thousand churches and that kind of stuff. Um, how do you know that? I mean, how, how have you let, you haven't laid your eyes on them, obviously. Um, so add some credibility to those numbers for me. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's true. I, I mean, I can't go into the field and go, you know, one, two, three, four. I'd, I'd be here. I mean, we'd all be here forever. Um, you know, counting Christians is, is, a, is a difficult challenge. It's, it's one that we've had now for, I mean, David Barrett wrote about it in the First World Christian Encyclopedia. Uh, we're now in the third edition and counting Christians. There's a lot of methodologies to it. It's a, it's a challenging uh, thing to do. Um, when you think about it in the United States, how do we know how many people there are in, say, the Southern Baptist uh, Convention or, you know, amongst the Methodists or amongst anybody like that? Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, what happens in the West is that a denominational headquarters sends out a survey once a year and the church fills out the survey. You know, we have so many people in the, on the membership roles. We have so many people in Sunday service. We have so many people in Sunday school. We, you know, all these different things. And they send that survey back to the headquarters. And the headquarters duly records all those numbers uh, in, the, in the system. And generally speaking, most people just, the church fills out the survey, the survey comes back, you take it at face value, and, and that's, that's how you come to the numbers. That's what we do. Now, in some cases, if the church fails to return the survey or if the numbers vary wildly from, say, the last year, then denominations might go and ask questions. And typically what happens is they'll ask, the, the national headquarters will ask questions of the district, you know, the, the state uh, headquarters or whatever, and they'll find out from the local church. But it's not like somebody, it's not like the IRS where somebody goes as an auditor, you know, and takes a random sample of the churches and says, we're going to go, you know, and count the number of people in your Sunday service and see if you're actually telling us the truth. Mm -hmm. That's not what happens. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, a lot of times, and I don't say this to be, to be aggressive, but a lot of times when I get asked a question about how do you know those people are, are really in those churches in India, I, say, I turn around and think, well, how do you know those people are in those churches in, in, in America? It, it's the same process. It's the exact same process. But for some reason, sometimes we feel more confident in the American numbers and less confident in the Indian numbers. Part of it is because the numbers are so big in places where time out of mind, we thought there's no one there. 
right? 75 million people. But when you think about it, um, you know, some of the numbers that we have in North India, they're a drop in the bucket compared to the number of people that are there. Yeah. Right. So we've seen movements, we've seen movement numbers from North India of, you know, in the millions. But the reality is the state of Uttar Pradesh plus Bihar, which are the two states right across the top of North India, there's more people in those two states of India than live in the United States alone. Yeah. So to say that there's, you know, a few million people in a, in a movement, that means one out of roughly 330 people. It, it, it'd be like, um, it'd be like Dallas where I live right now. This, the city of Dallas was all Christian and the rest of America was something else, some mix of Hindu and, and Muslim. It's, it's that kind of ratio. So sometimes what we reflexively look at and say, those numbers can't exist. Well, yeah, they're just small percentages. Of, of course they can. So uh, let me just briefly, the mechanics, uh, different movements count in different ways, just like different denominations in the West count in different ways. Uh, some of them uh, literally send census teams into the field. Uh, and that's how they count. So it is literally that they will send teams out and they will go to the leaders and they will, they will do a census count. That is not common. But I mean, it's not common in the West either. Others, basically what they will do is they'll survey their leaders. This is more like the denomination sending the survey to the pastors, right? So they'll, they'll survey their leaders and they'll say, how many people are in your stream? And they'll, they'll check those numbers in various ways. Sometimes what we'll do is, is we'll do something of a, of a sampling. And I've, I've done this with people before where we'll get like, like I went one time and, and we interviewed about a hundred plus leaders in the room and we got their stories and we talked about their, you know, where did they see churches in, geographically and what languages were being touched? We put all that analysis together and came up with the, with the number. Some of the movements are small enough that they know everybody in the movement. They've, they've got like a spreadsheet and, you know, this person has these many people and that person has these many people and this person mentors that person. That's really only very small movements though. I mean, once you get to, when you've got a movement of a thousand people, yeah, you can know everyone in the movement. Mm -hmm. Once you break that thousand barrier, uh, it's going to be progressively harder to know. Uh, and so typically what you'll do is you'll count leaders and how many people the leaders have. That's like counting pastors. Uh, you'll count those up to a certain point, and then you'll, you'll reach a point where you have to, to do some different methods to, to try to count those numbers. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I tell people, you know, in movements today, we have, we have between 74 and 75 million people. That's a huge number, but it's also somewhat rounded. And the reason is that it's always changing. Mm -hmm. You know, new believers are being made all the time. Some are dying. Some are being born. Some are being. Some are are, are converting in. Um, so that that number is always changing, and we we have to just keep it at a rounded number to say this is roughly how many people are in are in movements around the world. Interestingly enough, though, seventy five million people means that one out of a hundred believers in this world today are in a rapidly multiplying movement. Mm -hmm. I think that that is remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, and if that number gets to 2%, uh, and if those say hundred million plus 140 million plus believers are in where the existing movements are, some of the hardest places in the world, some of the most non-Christian places in the world, eventually you're, you're going to see something remarkable happen. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be, even more noticeable than just the numbers that we're collecting today. I fear along that road, there's going to be a lot of, unfortunately, a lot more persecution and a lot more martyrdom all around that road. Because when people are boldly sharing their faith, are boldly praying for miracles, are making disciples, are seeing some of the hardest radical non-christians converted and become pauls themselves when you when you see these kinds of things happen yes communities are transformed but spiritual darkness will push back and we already i mean many movements have already seen martyrs and i i'm sure we will see more yeah so one more thing on the credibility i mean at, at a thousand movements i'm sure those are are in a handful of organizations 
um, I mean, maybe, I don't know how many, but, but it, it's, it's about 35. Yeah. It's about 35. We call them, I call them families. Other people call them networks or, or yeah. yeah, there's about 35 networks. So it's still enough for you to know all of those people in a sense. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not like it's uh, uh, like the Baptist thing. Your, your illustration is, is, is as big as the Southern Baptist is. Uh, there's, there's really, you know, at the top, no one knows the bottom, but at this point we, we actually know the bottom in a sense. I mean, we, we have pretty close now at some point we hope that we don't. Uh, right. We, we would hope that that 35 would be 3,500 and, you know, 35,000. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about, you know, getting close to, you know, every man, woman, and child having a repeated opportunity to, you know, hear and respond to Jesus. So, um, yeah. But, uh, so in some ways, I mean, I, I hate to put this on you, Justin, but it does rest on your credibility in a sense. Is that you know your credibility as a researcher? <laughs> you know, you, yes. I, I know these people, and you could name them if you had to, but you know, there's a lot of security reasons why we don't. Um, and 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 some of us that are close in know those people. You know, so we we know the credibility that exists there. That people aren't just inflating numbers and and making things up and all that kind of stuff. And there's no reason to. There's no. There's no incentive you know to to inflate this it's just like we're just trying to figure out what's happening and make it happen again and again and again and again um, yeah so one of the reasons that i first started documenting this uh it was not it, it it was to be able to identify where movements were and where movements were not i'm far more concerned about knowing where the gaps are and where we should go <laughs> next um actually when I first started sharing um, the data uh, via email and via some PowerPoint presentations, one of the first things I did was tell the people who were receiving that data, this information, I called it my terms of service at the bottom of the email. It said, this information is not for publicity or for fundraising. It is for strategic decision-making about where we go next and you know, the progress that we're making. Mm. I, I wasn't out to prove that movements exist to people who don't believe, you know, in, in movements. Um, my, my major concern was I want to see this thing go from where it is right now. I want, I want to see the next doubling. Now, of course, wouldn't you know, <laughs> the instant I released those numbers, the first things that they were used for <laughs> were <laughs> a bit of publicity and a yeah. bit of fundraising. And it's just, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. But the reality is that when I share these numbers, I, I nearly always have immediately three reactions. One reaction is, that's great. You know, I, I've, I've heard a few stories about this. I'm so glad to hear this bigger picture. I believe it. Praise God. I'm, I'm full on board. You know, that whole thing. That's mm -hmm. usually a movement practitioner, right? Mm -hmm. a, a current movement practitioner. The second reaction I normally get uh, is no. I mean, I've actually had people look at me going, either you're lying or somebody's lying to you because there's no way. I don't know of any of this happening in whatever country. And it, if, I, if I don't know what's happening, if my friends in that country can't see it happening, it's not happening because, you know, my friends are really plugged in. Well, okay. Um, yeah. It, it, it's, I know these things are deep under the radar and I know sometimes this can be offensive and I just have to say, you know, I'm not trying to prove it to you because I'm just, I'm just not, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if this has offended you. I'm sorry that you're angry about it. Um, but I'm not lying to you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I literally sat across the table from a guy at a recent conference and I said, look me in the eye. Are you actually looking me in the eye and tell me I'm lying to you? Well, no, he wasn't saying, no, of course, you're not lying to me, but you're being, you know, you, you're being lied to. And we happened to be sitting at the table with another movement, you know, another guy. And I said, you know him? He said, yes. I said, you know, he's part of the numbers that I'm doing. He said, yeah. I said, are you going to look him in the eye and tell him he's lying to me? So I, yeah. you can't convince, you, yeah. you can't convince everybody. The third person is the one that says, man, this just really challenges everything I've ever thought. Mm -hmm. this, I, I just don't know how to wrap my brain around that, but I'd like to hear more. That's the person I want, I, I'm doing this for. That's the person I want to talk to. Because 
the people who are already on board are already doing stuff, but we need more people to do more stuff. Yeah. And, and that's the person that I, I want to talk to. So let's go there as we, as we end up, because your daytime job is, uh, includes a recruiting for a, an organization that is attempting to find those people and send them to those places. Um, so uh, tell us about you know, Beyond and what you're doing, and, and if someone was interested, what, what would you suggest? So back in 2009, 2010, I wrote an article that basically said, if you have a team that uses a multiplying strategy, they can reach 100,000 people. This is not actually something new. We've seen this historically. In many instances, there's been a small team with a multiplying strategy that typically can reach about 100,000 people. Well, we know how many unevangelized people there are in the world. And we know how many non-Christians there are in the world, roughly, in rough orders of magnitude. So we know that of the unevangelized, there's about 2.2 billion. And for non-Christians, there's about 4 billion and change. So if a team can take 100,000 people, then to take all the non-Christians in the world would require 43,000 teams. A team of two to three people, 43,000 teams, of which about 22,000 of those are um, un unevangelized, unreached people groups. That report, uh, that analysis made its way uh, via the current president uh, of Beyond, uh, Kent Parks, um, who was my team leader in Southeast Asia when we lived there at the time. That, that report made its way to Beyond, which at the time was Mission to Unreached Peoples, about 10 years ago. And Beyond said, uh, we need, okay, we need 40, they actually did the 43,000 teams, but whatever. Um, they said, we need 43,000 teams. We believe God is telling us as a board to take 1% of those teams mm -hmm. and then to help the rest of the world raise the other 99%. And I thought, wow. Now, if we had 100 agencies that each committed to 1% of the teams, that's amazing. But, you know, why not be part of that? And it took a while. Uh, for a variety of, it's a long story that I won't get into now, but it took a while, but eventually I transitioned into Beyond in part because Beyond said, we are going to do that. Now, 1% of the task means 430 teams. 430 teams roughly means about 1,200 missionaries on the field. Uh, at the time uh, that they said that, uh, at the time that I came into Beyond, we were basically below 100 people on the field. So we were wanting to grow from somewhere around 100 to somewhere around 1,200, which put, would put us into a very large size. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, uh, we were, uh, the guy who was serving as our director of recruiting went on to some other things. We were in between recruiting directors. And um, in, in that time period, those couple of months, it was, you know, really challenging. It was, we, we were facing a lot of different issues and we had uh, two people on our recruiting team at the time. And I was sitting there and I was through the, through, they were in these two rooms over on the other hallway and I'm sitting in this, in this room over here and I was working on a small research project and, and I could hear some of what they were talking about. And, and they were, they were really kind of, they were really kind of floundering a little bit because, you know, here we were at a hundred, we wanted to go to 1200. And I thought, okay, I'm the director of research. Yes. And I'm the one documenting what's going on, yes. But am I ready to, as it were, put my money where my mouth is mm -hmm. and try to do something about the problem, not just talk about the problem? And so I, I talked to our, uh, to our VP of development and said, look, why don't I just, you need a recruiter. And so you need a director of recruiting. And so while we're waiting for the right person to come along, I surely can't you know, messed it up too bad, why don't I just do this on an interim basis? And so I've been the interim director of recruiting now for <laughs> over two years. So our, our goal, our, our desire, the thing that we believe God has told us to do is um, to do, we, we were at 10 new recruits the first year that I was there. Uh, so we said, let's go from 10 to 20, and then the next year we'll go to 40, and the next year we'll go to 80, and the next year we'll go to 160, we'll double each year. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, movements are about doubling. Let's, 
Let's just double. That's what we should do, right? No plan, no nothing. And that's what we've been working on doing. Uh, and last year we came, we came very, very close to 20 new candidates. And this year our goal is 40. Um, we, we do a lot uh, of work uh, around that. But, you know, the amazing thing to me is I believe, um, I believe God really gave us that vision and that goal. He gave us the 1%. He gave us the doubling each year. I believe he did that. Last year, when we went to 20, or we, I think we ended up at like 18 or something like that. A good chunk of that 18 came like practically at the last minute because there was one church that sent a bunch of candidates through, through beyond. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was nothing we did. It was all God's grace. Mm -hmm. Right. This year, our goal was 40. And I thought, man, I mean, we got close to 20, but we didn't cross the 20 line. Yeah. How are we going to get to 40 this year? Mm -hmm. Right. All of our processes, all of the things that we've been doing in recruiting are basically build just to use the DMM analogy. All we're doing is we're building the boat and putting the boat in the water. We've got our sails up, but we haven't seen a, a massive, a massive wind, right? We haven't seen, we haven't seen a lot of momentum yet. And then, and then in February and March, I was, you know, in February, I was seeing this, this, this COVID thing, you know, ramping up and I, I was, just in a small way, sounding the alarm with a few people. And then in March, my, you know, the tail end of February, beginning of March, my alarm bells were really going off. And I was saying, this is, this is not going to be good because we all know what movements do. That's what this is going to do. And it's not going to be good. So when we went into quarantine, uh, the, the first two months, uh, my, my wife actually said, you know, to reach 40, all you need is basically three per month with a few with a few fours mm -hmm. you know that's that's what you really need and i thought okay you're right that's true and in january we saw three and in february uh we had four and uh, but when the quarantine kicked up i thought this this will kill us it's just gonna kill us it, it it's awful right there's just no way wouldn't you know in march we had i believe it was four and in April, we've had, we, we haven't solidly had three yet, but we have a lot of very, very strong potentials of people who said we're going to fill out the application. Yeah. So to me, it's just amazing what God is doing that really, I, I mean, all we're doing is, is we're doing the processes, but it's not on us. It's, it's yeah. on God. And he's yeah. using this, this time to help people see what's really What's really of, of eternal significance. Yeah. I firmly believe that God called us and said he wants us to send 1% of those teams. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying there's anything magical about the number, but I firmly believe God wants us to send teams to the nations. It's not just Africans and Asians. I believe Americans and Europeans and Australians and Latinos and Africans and Middle Easterners, all of us, it's, it's everybody together going for this, for this task. Um, we can't stay at home. We can't sit on the sidelines. We can't just sit by and send money and hire other people to take on dangerous and risky things. We need to be willing to step up and put our, our, our mouth where our money is and, and go ourselves and do some of this. Yeah. And I believe that uh, God is summoning people We've seen everything from college students to middle-aged to entrepreneurs to uh, second-generation retired people. He's calling people to, to, to respond and go to people who have no chance of hearing if we don't go. Yeah. So you got me. I want to fill out an application. Where do I go? Beyond.org and click the Join Us link. Okay. Beyond. B-E-Y-O-N-D dot O-R-G. Beyond.org. Join us. Or even more straightforward, you could just email me, justin at beyond.org. I'll be happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> so if I want to follow some of this thinking, uh, do you put it out on the internet any place? 
Yes, I have a website, justinlong.org, which is an archive of links to uh, a lot of resources. And there's also uh, on that website, there's a thing called the Roundup. I send that every Friday. And it is a, uh, a long email of annotated links to articles that are about events that are happening amongst the unreached today. So you'll get events, you'll get trends, you'll get new data sources, you'll get more things than you could possibly uh, want. And because they're annotated, you don't have to read every article. Yeah. I did have one guy email me and tell me he had unsubscribed because I was feeding his information addiction. And I said, <laughs> you don't have to read every article. You can just have a sense of what's going on and pick a few. But I put that out every Friday. Yeah. So and I, I would say that, you know, that that is uh, is very valuable. It's probably a week doesn't go by that I don't use something like that in my own writing or speaking or consulting or anything else. Uh, it's, it's extremely valuable um, in, in probably 20, 30 minutes as I scan it um, on the weekend, I, I scan the world. It's like I take a trip around the globe and, uh, and have a pretty good feel for what's going on. So I appreciate you, you doing that. Sometimes I don't like you when it shows up because I, I have to realize, <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm barely through last week. I got to get this done. <laughs> so it's incredible. Well, thanks, Justin, so much for your time. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate your work. And I appreciate the way you do it, too. Um, you are a treat uh, and a gift to the kingdom. So uh, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Roy. It's glad to be here. I'm, I'm always glad to show up. You, you guys have some great conversations and some great conversation starters. And, uh, you know, as I often tell the uh, I've often told my, my recruiting team, you know, I'm, I'm going to have spend some time with Roy this weekend and he's, he's always got a book or a contact or something to challenge me with. And that's, that's good. I need, I need voices like yours in my life. Oh man. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for joining us for this discussion about the DNA of gospel movements. Our hope at new generations, North America is to catalyze and nurture discovery based disciple making movements in North America. We'd love for you to share this podcast with your network. Check out the resources in the show notes to pursue your journey. And join us if you'd like. If we have some resources or some tools that you can use, make sure that you take advantage of them. Thanks so much, and thanks for being here.